Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and I'm with Martin Spain and in this show we discuss cars in films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. In this episode we're going to be doing a Burt Reynolds double bill but first, last Thursday saw the... International Motor Film Awards down in that there London. Across all the categories, the big winner for us was one of our films from the last episode. Baby Driver won Best Drama Film Feature. But looking across the other ones, which other categories caught your eye, Martin? I was very interesting to see that the Mission Impossible Fallout movie took down one of the big ones. Um, Because the Mission Impossible movies are probably the gold standard for big budget car chases these days and it's really nice to see that being recognized i know there's some bmw product placement in some of the the later ones so there's moments where you see an m3 or an m4 get ragged around and then when it comes to roll down some stairs it magically seems to have got some very very small 16 inch wheels that magically turn into some 19s again when it hits the ground um but yeah i I really was really pleased to see that got that get some some love because it's an astonishing achievement as a movie and the car stuff in fallout is incredible there's an old bmw in there that i really really like probably more than the new stuff and it's got tom cruise flying a helicopter i I have to be honest i haven't seen any of the mission impossible since two have i I seen one i can't remember if i've seen one if you how is this possible how could it was that it was that time when it was all just like Limp Biscuit and... So you've seen the um, worst one. You've seen the worst Mission Impossible movie and you haven't seen any of the good ones. It was John Woo, wasn't it? It was. It was John Woo and it had doves and it had Tom Cruise hanging off a cliff and it had those funny oak cliches that everyone went out and bought if they could afford them. And uh, it had Limp Biscuit <laughs> on the soundtrack. They've gone on... They've moved on way past that now. Okay. And the last, okay. the last three... Um, have been really amazing action movies. So directed by Brad Bird, and then the last two have been done by Chris McQuarrie, and they're amazing. And they've got proper car chase content in them. Like, like I say, I think these are actually beating Bond at its own game at the moment. It's actually quite interesting looking at the results from the Motor Film Awards. Best cinematography went to Mission Impossible against some, more, well. The ones that I recognise, there's some good stuff in there. But it also got best stunts ahead of, in both categories, ahead of Baby Driver, ahead of Taxi Driver, uh, uh, Taxi 5, sorry, and, uh, in best stunts. And yeah, I think that, that probably says a lot. And I'm, I'm going to watch it loud and watch it on a big screen. Go from MI3 onwards, because MI3 is actually quite good. And it's got a Lambo in it, and uh, there's probably some car chase stuff in that. But yeah, start with that because they're all good action movies, apart from two, and two <laughs> is kind of just silly. Um, but yeah, looking through the list of, of winners, I have to say, Baby Driver getting it for best drama is probably the right decision when it's up against something like Mission Impossible Fallout because Fallout stunts are on another level. They have a budget that's on another level, sure, mm. but they put it all up on the screen. Baby Driver made a credible use of the money it had and leveraged Edgar Wright's creativity and a a desire to put real stunts on the screen. And as a drama, I think it's, it's a worthy winner. But I must admit, seeing Mission Impossible Fallout take down some of the big categories was um, really pleasing. The category that I was less keen on was the fact that um, Henry Catchpole's McLaren Senna movie didn't win. I was a bit bummed out about that, to be honest, because I love that film. And Mm. I I would love for it to have won, but it was beaten by the Grand Tour's Detroit Muscle Power film for the best journalism film category. Um, now, I know you've gone back and rewatched that and you reckon it's deserving of the, the victory. I haven't gone back and watched it since it was first online. And so I'm a bit, really? They've got a massive budget and, you know, yeah. Amazon backing and everything. I, I must admit, my first thought was, I can't believe that one's up for an award because for me, the one that I remember was the columbia two-part one where they just air dropped a car in three crates and they hadn't got any beer because i i thought that was a really nice and it was really um it had a real heart to it 
there was a real substance and the, it was all about the relationship of the chemistry. Yeah, that, that one you can't fake. When you're asking no. them to build a car and they're quite deliberately being left to their own devices to sort themselves out, that it's, it's genuine in a way that I think the three amigos have found harder to capture on film recently. Mm. But the Detroit one, I mean, even from the very first minute, the money is all up on screen. It is beautifully shot. It is astonishingly well put together. They obviously have the budget. They can close roads. They can do all sorts of stuff which a car faction couldn't. But actually, having rewatched it and always coming to it fresh again, it made me laugh a lot. It has... I, I What could have been actually a really awkward joke at the end about Hammond turning his... Uh, challenger into a into its drag spec and they really let that play out in a way which could have just been awful yeah well i think that plays to their long-standing tradition of anything that is a a tedious process they deliberately make it more tedious like activating launch control on any car is always (laughs) drawn out you know i press this button hold it down for five seconds and every single car will it's it's their in joke about how ridiculous is this but taken to extremes I, i i agree i remember it being a funny and well put together piece i'm gonna have to go back and revisit mm. it from the grand tour i would have highlighted yeah like you said maybe that special where they were building the car or even richard hammond's tribute to jim clark i thought yes. that was that was by far and away the best vt segment of that entire series and i know mm. it's really easy to pick the stuff that isn't them dicking about and is actually something genuine but it it told the story even to me who knows quite a bit about jim clark in a way that was engaging and in a way that brought new facts to light and really opened your eyes to what it is he achieved in that one year. Oh, and God, you can yeah. see it. And it comes across in the film that Hammond's quite surprised by the the sheer weight of numbers of, of wins that Clark had and the, the skill he had to do what he did in a single year. That mm. would have been my choice for that. Um, I presume that they're invited to put forward a film, so I don't know. But yeah, there's there's a few other interesting ones I haven't seen. There's quite a few of these shorts that I haven't seen because I don't know where to see them. So there's it's worth checking out the Motorfilm Awards website, motorfilmawards.com slash results, yeah. um, and checking out some of these movies. I'm actually going to go and look for a couple of them that sound really interesting. There's one called The Last Race, Best Documentary Film Feature. Um, I'm quite interested to, to look that one up. And the best commercial films too, the, the sort of manufacturer-backed ones, Porsche and Audi both came away with awards and they're well known as doing great ads, so I'm going to look for those too. And I think the other one for me would be The Louder Legacy, where Nick and Tim Han, who we mentioned a few episodes ago. They, oh, did they do that? Um, it was the Nurburgring one. Nurburgring the, 24 thing. And yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I haven't seen much of their stuff since. So I'm kind of interested just to sort of meet them again and see what uh, see what they've been up to. Um, speaking of documentaries, we've also had, uh, released some time ago now, a film called Rapid Response, which... I think came out in the UK on a limited release at the start of September in the US as well. And as far as I can tell, it's still popping up in film festivals and what have you. This is a look at how safety has improved in NASCAR from the 50s and the 60s. Sorry, IndyCar. You're quite right. Not NASCAR. Um, I think from a European point of view, it's often easy to overlook the amount of work that goes into safety in the US. I think they pioneered a lot of the hands device, they're doing work with aero screens, and this is looking at the on-track support, the medical facilities, what used to go on, and all the things that now drivers fortunately can talk about with, uh, with much less risk of injury than they used to be. So, Reviews have generally have been a bit mixed in the, in the general press, but all the coverage I can see online points to it being good. So if we start seeing that pop up anywhere on Netflix or Amazon or any of those, we'll definitely give a shout out in a future episode and put it on our social media feeds. I'd really like to see this. I think this would make a great double bill with the Formula One safety documentary, uh, one, colon, life on the limit. <laughs> have to pronounce the colon. Uh, because otherwise it sounds like I've just said a word that doesn't make sense. That's true. Um, But yeah, that's a really great documentary on the safety in Formula One and how 
astonishingly dangerous it was mm. back in the 60s and 70s. Um, it's a little dated now. It was made before Jules Bianchi lost his life at Suzuka. And it was made, I think, possibly even before some of the more recent high-profile IndyCar fatalities, um, where mm. talents like uh, Dan Weldon and more recently Justin Wilson have been lost uh, and people like Robert Wickens have been very seriously injured because IndyCar and ovals is just lethal as far as I can make out. Every time I watch the Indy 500, I'm in awe of what they're doing and I'm praying that they don't have another one of those horrendous 200 mile an hour crashes where the drivers are flying off into the catch fencing. Oh, so God, there's a part yeah. of me that really wants to see this in the in the documentary and there's a part of me that hopes it doesn't go into too much detail because it's really upsetting watching the kinds of accidents that the speeds they have in IndyCar just seem more extreme than Formula One because Formula One is fast but only in short bursts. Formula One's a lot more about the, the downforce and the change of direction and IndyCar is a lot more well, that sustained high speed on ovals and when you have that kind of low drag trimmed out car when something goes wrong, they take off and they don't have the kind of things that NASCAR have, the flaps and so on that deploy to prevent cars from from rolling over in the air. They just go wherever. It's the cause of a lot of really, really nasty accidents in IndyCar. So there's a part of me that wants to see it and there's a part of me that doesn't. But I think it would make a great double bill with Life on the Limit. So when rapid re- response is available, uh, we'll let you know. I think... This is what our... Uh, did we manage a complete episode without talking about The Fast and the Furious? I think we might have done last week, so we're about to break that streak. Uh, <laughs> I put this into the show notes at a very last minute thing because I've been itching to talk about this and um, now is as good a time as any. So because we haven't talked about Fast and the Furious for a week, I feel like we should crowbar some content in. <laughs> this is tenuous at best, but I've been following a YouTuber rebuilding the Merchilago Million Dollar Show Car from Fast and Furious 8, otherwise known as Fate of the Furious. It's that bright orange thing that um, Tyrese Gibson picks out of the warehouse to drive and it ends up going along the ice and getting hit by a submarine and sinking and all sorts of stuff. And apparently there were three cars built for the movie and this youtuber by the name of Tavarish bought one of them screen used not dropped into the ice and has <laughs> been rebuilding it and it is a fascinating watch because the thing is an absolute wreck when he gets it he paid a steep high five figure sum for it which is cheap for a Lamborghini Murcielago but a lot of money nonetheless and it came with loose seats, a dirty, rusty roll cage bolted into it, just the worst body kit you can imagine. Apparently the production were just making them out of fiberglass and nailing them to the car. <laughs> and you think I'm joking? No, just nailing it on there. The paint job is is half an inch thick and has got runs in it. It's It looked good on screen for as long as they needed it to, but when you look at it up close, it's a wreck. And he's been hard at work rebuilding it. And there are a lot of these YouTube um, build channels. B is for build, uh, Tavarish's own one, Rich Rebuilds, loads of them going on. Um, I think we've highlighted a few of them on the podcast Mm. before. Tavarish is really good to watch. He's really enthusiastic. He's got real skills. and, And he really sells the idea of you can do this stuff yourself. And it's made a huge difference to my confidence in going and fixing random stuff on my car because I've seen other people do it and I think, well, how they can do it and they've just got a set of socket sets and a few jacks and so on. (laughs) I ought to be able to do it as well. Um, So I really recommend seeking out his um, Merchilago build. We'll put the link in the show notes. But uh, yes, Fast and Furious 8 Merchilago rebuild project. Worth a look. Is that the one where the roll cage extends into the engine bay in just the worst yes, bit it's of that tubing one. and splatter? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, it's it's been resprayed and rebuilt and it's starting to come to uh, take shape. Uh, he's going to take it to the SEMA show when it's finished um, and there's there's rumours of trying to get it reunited with Tyrese for a photo shoot. But uh, it's it's a bit of kit now. It looks amazing. So, yes, there's our obligatory Fast and Furious content for the week. We'll try and leave it another week or two before dropping some more in. I was about to add some more, but I'll... uh, Let's wait and see if we can manage a whole episode without talking about something Fast and Furious related. Instead, let's move on to the subject of this episode, which is Burt Reynolds. I have to say this was partly inspired by a bit of a a Twitter conversation between Will Beaumont and Alex Goy, triggered by Alex's reappraisal, shall we say, of the Italian job. 
And as soon as you talk about cars and as soon as you talk about Burt Reynolds, everyone talks about Smokey and the Bandit and Cannonball Run. So, Marty, why don't you kick us off with Smokey and the Bandit? Okay, so I'm going to go through one of my favourite car movies. Uh, I recently rewatched this for research purposes uh, <laughs> and I sat down with the family on Sunday to go through it and just remind myself of what a great movie it is. So this was made in 1977, uh, directed by Hal Needham, who was a stuntman turned director, uh, apparently also lived in Burt Reynolds' pool house for <laughs> a good portion of his life and they were both so busy they never really saw one another, but he had the idea for a bootlegging movie. And he wrote the first draft of the script on yellow legal pads and showed it to Burt Reynolds, who said, this is the worst script I have ever read, (laughs) but I'll do it anyway. So this is the story of Bo Bandit Darville. That's Burt Reynolds' character. Uh, And his friend Cletus Snowman Snow. Cletus, they just call him Snowman. These are sort of CB radio handles and that will become important later on. They're two bootleggers and they are asked to drive from Atlanta to Texarkana to pick up 400 cases of Coors beer and illegally transport it back to Atlanta in 28 hours or less. Now, coming from the UK, I have absolutely no idea why it's illegal to transport beer over state lines or what on earth bootlegging is. So I had to dig into this kind of thing to figure out what the the whole premise of the plot is based on. And apparently, Coors beer back in the late 70s, was not pasteurised and it needed constant refrigeration and couldn't be legally sold outside of 11 western and southwestern US states, <laughs> which meant that if it was found in other states, people would pay a premium for it. And so while Hal Needham was working as Burt Reynolds' stunt double on a movie, one of the captains on the set brought some cause beer from California and brought some cases to Needham's hotel room. When he noticed that the hotel maid kept stealing the beers from the hotel fridge, he remembered this thing about how Coors was unavailable in the East because it wasn't pasteurised and couldn't be sold, etc. And it made him realise that an idea of a movie about bootlegging Coors would be a great plotline. And there is born Smokey and the Bandit. So, two wealthy Texans, Big Enos and his son Little Enos, are looking for a trucker willing to drive this bootleg beer for their refreshment. They've got some kind of race sponsor thing going on and they find the bandit at a rodeo and that's road spelled r-o-a-d um where he's driving some kind of truck i don't know how this is hard it's a truck it goes in a straight line but he's apparently winning a race they offer him eighty thousand dollars to pick up these 400 <laughs> cases of course and bring it back to Atlanta in 28 hours He's hard up for cash. He takes the money and goes and gets his partner, Snowman, to drive the truck, while Bandit drives an iconic black Pontiac Trans Am as a blocker to divert attention away from the truck and its illegal cargo. This bit, again, kind of, you've got to go with it. Honestly, I'm not sure how realistic this kind of thing is. There's basically, he's there to dick about and distract the policeman (laughs) while the guy in a truck basically drives 28 hours more or less non-stop. Um... If they just drove a grey truck covered in dirt, it wouldn't get stopped. Everything would be fine. You wouldn't need the bandit at all, but eh, let that one go. (laughs) So they arrive in Texarkana ahead of schedule. They load the truck full of beer and they go back toward Atlanta. However, almost immediately, the bandit is stopped by a runaway bride in the middle of the road. Who knew? This is a thing in America. But there you go. Um, She hitches a ride and in doing so, bandit picking her up becomes a target of one of the best movie named characters in the world, Sheriff Buford T. Justice, (laughs) who is a career Texas lawman and whose son Junior was due to be this woman's bridegroom. They're chasing her. She ends up with a bandit. So now they're chasing the bandit. And as they chase him, many mishaps occur. (laughs) The bandit gets in trouble from police all the way throughout Dixie while you know the truck is just keeps on trucking and then the sheriff keeps catching up with him, not catching up with him, getting into scrapes, bits fall off his car, gets blocked by other people. One of the <laughs> best things about this this movie and one of the things that maybe either dates it or makes it even better is the use of CB radio. 
Bandit mm. is on the CB all the time, talking to Snowman, keeping him abreast of where he is and what he's doing. And as the movie gets on and Bandit gets into more scrapes, he's able to call for help from loads of other people on the CB who are willing to help out Bandit because they like him and because he's Burt Reynolds. Um, and they do all sorts of stuff like cause traffic jams and help him get clear of roadblocks because they like the Bandit and they don't like Sheriff Buford T. Justice. <laughs> Which is a shame because Buford T. Justice is kind of the MVP of this movie. He makes it, he takes it from what could be just kind of a, a coolish Burt Reynolds actioner into just absolute classic the reason I think it works is because everything's very natural. All the dialogue is quite snappy, particularly between um, Bandit and Carrie. There's there's really great kind of repartee back and forth. So when I was digging into research for this, I was amazed to find out there was virtually no script. We go back to that bit where Hal Needham presented the script to Burt Reynolds and he said it was the worst script he'd ever written. <laughs> Apparently, um, this has been corroborated by a few sources, most of it was just improv on set. Wow. Um Jackie Gleason, who plays Buford T. Justice, was oh. brought in because of his improv skills and because he would be a bit more dangerous and a bit more um, live wire. And he improved almost everything. He insisted that he have someone else in the car with him, which is how the character of his son got written into it, so that he have someone to, to bounce off of. And, and given that large portions of his screen time are taken with berating his, his son for being a bit slow, which he is, uh, and the other parts are being berating everybody else for getting in his way, it's, you can c- clearly see when you know that it's all ad-libbed, that it's all just, what can I say that's most outrageous? What can I do to make everyone laugh? And it really, really works. I have no idea how they were able to cut it all together, but it really, really works. And uh, I'm amazed that they were able to get away with this. Mm. But there's loads of great things about this, principally that Pontiac Trans Am. It's an iconic car. Hal Needham saw one in an advert and went, I need that in my movie. I must have one of those. And it's a character in its own right. It's just so iconic in movie cars you've got things like the general lee uh, does that count as a movie car i guess it does oh yeah generally bandits pontiac trans am the delorean from back to the future it's right up there with those as movie cars so hal needham talked to pontiac and and they had an agreement that he'd get four 1977 trans ams and then two le mans sedans for the movie Mm. um Nerd fact, apparently the Trans Ams were actually 1976 models with 1977 front ends, but I don't care. (laughs) You know, I'm sure that there are American muscle fans out there who find this stuff fascinating, but really, it's just a cool looking car. Um, There's a thing on the hood scoop that says 6.6 litre, which I think is a lie to make the car look better. I don't think it's got a 6.6 litre engine underneath the hood, but there you go. It looks cool. It sounds cool. The car's took a beating <laughs> by all accounts the last shot of the movie which has the trans am in it the car had to be pushed into shot by another car because it wouldn't start because it had been so trashed by all the stunts and you know this is a little bit like need for speed having a director who's a stunt man he's going to want to put real stunts up on the screen and all the driving mm. in this i must admit is really amazing given that it's a 70s car that probably doesn't have abs doesn't have a fly off handbrake actually probably doesn't have all that much power if we're honest you know they were this is the the 70s where they had very low octane fuel and yet they're pulling big power slides big bootlegger turns handbrake turns and you're driving off the the tarmac of a of a freeway onto the central reservation and back on again the cars fishtailing all over the place the stunt drivers really earn their pay and i'm pretty sure that hal needham the director actually did some of the stunt driving because he couldn't help himself (laughs) there's loads of great stuff but there's an icon one of the most iconic movie car stunts in that they jump a river in the car and I mean, this reminds me of Bond so much. I can't remember if Smoking the Bandit did it first or Bond did it first, but it's it's very Bondian. It's a bridge jump, little ramp, over goes the car, lands on the other side, and they cut to them carrying on as if nothing's happened. That car was toast. <laughs> that car was a banana by the time it was finished bouncing up and down and everything it was wrecked but with all the other stunts all the other cars were wrecked so they started cannibalizing them for parts to keep one show you know one car running 
And when you know that, it's hard not to look at the car as it's on screen as it gets further throughout the movie and go, yeah, it's looking a bit yeah, less less polished now. The detailer in me is looking at it going, oh, look at those swirls. No clear coat on that paint. <laughs> That's pretty sad. Um, it's just rattle cans yeah, and, uh, and transfers. Yeah. The car that Buford T. Justice is in takes a similar pasting. It's involved in all sorts of scrapes, has its roof smashed off. And again, that one was continually not working and having to be brought back to life by the production to keep it going until the end of the movie. Um, it's fascinating to to realise that, you know, in an era where they'd have 20 cars now and there'd be rig cars and all sorts, none of that was done for this movie. It was all done on the cheap, kind of. Speaking of which, they had a, a fairly small budget for for an action movie originally budgeted at something like five and a half million and then universal the backers the week before shooting sent a fixer down to basically say yeah i want a million back you're not getting it wow. now so four and a half million they made it work and you know, we think with some rewrites and stuff but imagine i don't know one of the avengers movies being budgeted at 200 million and then them sending someone down there to say you now only got 80 percent of that you know there's just shots wouldn't wow. happen but uh, it paid off for them because this was the second highest grossing movie the year it was released. And the year it was released was 1977. Second only to oh. Star Wars. Yeah. Imagine that. So four and a half million, second highest grossing movie of the year. And apparently, well, there's some fudge fact around the figures, but went on to gross worldwide over 300 million. Wow. How's that for a return on investment? Yeah. I really enjoyed rewatching this. I, it totally holds up. It's fantastic fun. It's got iconic music, which was written by the guy that plays Snowman in the movie, Jerry Reed. Uh, the great theme, Eastbound and Down. That was apparently written overnight. Oh, wow. Reed had promised to write something for the production, and come the very end of the shooting, he hadn't done anything. <laughs> And he promised the director, I'll do it overnight. I'll have something for you tomorrow. And he just sort of slung something together. It's why you wow. hear kind of plot points in the in the, in the the lyrics. Mm. And played it to Needham the next day and said, I'm really, really sorry. I'll change anything you like. And he said, don't you change an effing thing. <laughs> and it's an iconic, for, for all it was written overnight, it's an iconic theme. Mm. And they use it loads in the movie. It's great fun to watch. We watched it as a family. Some of the language is probably not quite appropriate for my young son so we just told him to forget that particular word when he heard it and you hear it quite a lot um he loved all of the action the car sliding sideways the cb radio stuff we had to explain to him what a cb radio was and he said why didn't you have one daddy and i went well we've got phones now we don't need a cb radio um, I'm, I'm i'm putting a cb radio in your car now <laughs> I, cb i think was one of the things i don't think it really caught on in the uk but this movie no. made it look cool as all hell and it's one of the big things you remember is there something else i can help you with oh siri thinks it was cool too <laughs> stupid siri <laughs> honestly this is one of the iconic car movies and the fact that it's got burt reynolds uh, on his absolute most charming form i don't think he's ever been more suited to a role than this anytime he's on screen you you're interested in what he's got to say he just exudes charm and the real rapport he has with sally field who plays carrie they just bounce off one another in that kind of classic hollywood co-lead way and it makes watching the scenes with them in the car, and there's a lot of scenes with them in the car, but they never get boring because they're always kind of sniping and flirting with one another. It really, really works. The stunt action is great in an old school kind of way. They're, there's none of this cut, 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 cut. There's none of. There's not even any rig shots, really. It's all wide shots and the car doing the thing. <laughs> there's a couple of moments where they speed the car up a bit, probably because it's an American shitbox and it can't actually go that fast. But you don't really notice because it's not that obvious. It's not like, say, the cannonball run. Mm. where I think some of the shots are more obvious. Oh, um, God, yes. <laughs> speaking of which, Chris, do you want to tell us about watching the Cannonball run again? Yes, yes. I, I have to provide a little bit of context. I know when you were talking about the BMW films, they kind of marked a point in your life. And Cannonball Run, for me, and Cannonball Run too, because when you're young, the two are kind of interchangeable, I don't remember where I was when I first saw them or who I saw them with or anything like that. I just remember always knowing about them. And I have always had a copy on VHS. I've always had a copy on DVD. The story is very simply a race from Connecticut 
to Los Angeles. Winner takes all. And it was written by Brock Yates. Uh, Brock Yates was editor of Car and Driver magazine. He did TV commentary for motorsport. And he literally wrote the book on Cannonball. And him and a few other people started doing these illegal races prior to the film. I have that book somewhere. Just looking at my yes. shelves now, I'm pretty sure I've got it. The seat, mm. Yeah, where has it gone? I, th- I think the first one that they did competitively was him and Dan Gurney in a Ferrari Daytona racing across country, which, as stories go, is a great place to start. And he wrote about the Cannonball Run. There were articles in Time magazine. They kind of got the public co- uh, consciousness, so they wrote... A film script and Hal Needham, again from Smoking the Bandit, came on as director and uh, helped with the writing. And the film was supposed to be an action film initially with Steve McQueen in the lead. But it then became a comedy starring Burt Reynolds when Steve McQueen was uh, sadly diagnosed with cancer in 1980. The plot itself is very straightforward. So you meet all these crews, they all arrive at a starting point, and then off they go into the into the night. Um, the main two crews that the story really focuses on, main three crews, rather, the story really focuses on, one is Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise being ambulance drivers. The ambulance itself was actually one that Brock Yates and Hal Needham drove in a cannonball race. Amazingly, it's standard from the outside, has a Hemi engine in the front of it, and in the back of it has a 341-litre fuel tank (laughs) with four filler nozzles so it can be filled up quickly. Can you imagine driving down the road with 300-odd litres of petrol? No wonder they've got the Hemi in there, otherwise it wouldn't move. Well, quite. Um, Then you've got Sammy Davis Jr. and you've got Dean Martin pretending to be a pair of priests driving a Ferrari 308. And finally, you have two women who, I'm not sure the characters are actually ever mentioned by name, two women driving a Lamborghini Countach. Now, the film starts with one of the most iconic songs in all the film, particularly for me when I was knee-high to a grasshopper. And not only does it have a great theme song, that song has the sound of a V12 Lamborghini pushed right up in the mix. And it literally starts with a tracking shot of a car. It blips the down... It doesn't even blip it. Double D clutches on the down change. Holds the throttle open. And it's kind of going... Nee. And then the synth kind of picks up that... And off it goes. And it is these shots of Lamborghinis outrunning the police... You keep hearing the uh, exhaust note, the down changes, the tyre squealing, what have you, and they misdirecting the police and all this sort of thing. And it gets to the end and it finishes with this big crescendo of the synth and the V12 and it kind of has this triumphant end and that's the end of the best bit of the film. (laughs) Fair. It's... oh, So it then basically starts gathering up all these characters and there's lots of expositions like, have you heard about this this uh, this race across America? No, what is it called? It's called the Cannonball Run. Oh, we should do that. And there's Burt Reynolds' character and Dom DeLuise in this workshop prepping what looks to be uh, something like a 935 Porsche, which they then go out and instantly crash. And then they end up in an ambulance. And then... The, and in the background to the shots, there are Ferrari, um, I think it's Ferrari 246 GT, there's uh, flat-nosed 911s, there's Corvettes and stuff. And then the people who are actually driving, one drives a recovery truck, a couple drive station wagons because they can get more beer in them. It, it actually has a surprisingly diverse cast, so there's Jackie Chan doing his first American movie, apparently a bit irked because he's Chinese and he was playing a Japanese character. They have a nondescript Arab sheikh who drives a white Rolls Royce and is very sort of, I come here and I buy your restaurant and I eat couscous. This movie, you mentioned with Alex Goy revisiting the Italian job and finding that some things just wouldn't hold up in current times this movie way more than Smokey and the Bandit suffers from that the the caricaturing of characters is borderline offensive I think when it comes to race it's not too bad 
And I've got to say, actually, one of my favourite characters is a character called Seymour Goldfarb, who believes he is Roger Moore. And he's played by Roger Moore. So he believes he is James Bond, and he believes his name is Roger Moore. And his very Jewish mother is like, Hi, I, I paid for all your dental work and your surgery. And you think, Well, mother, it is time for you to die. And he drives a silver DB5. And every time he's on the screen, there's this kind of John Barrier ding, 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 ding. It's just like, What? It's, <laughs> it, it's that's desperately bonkers. surreal. That would almost work as a sketch on its own. It would. But the, so the other thing, before I get to the really offensive bit, is the amount of drinking in it. Not between shots, but actually, you know, there's, there's a couple of characters who are loading their car with beer. Uh, you know, we've got to make sure we've got enough beer for the trip. There's one bit where there's Dean Martin, who looks utterly twatted throughout the whole <laughs> film. Yes, he does. Him and Sammy Davis Jr. have basically both been on the lash and they're, they're basically deciding between them who's the least drunk because they're going to drive. And then we get to the worst bit of the whole thing for me, and this is a very sort of 2019, call it what you will, view, but the way the film treats women is awful. So there's these two women in the Countach in these really skimpy uh, jumpsuits and the joke is that every time they get stopped by the police they kind of unzip their, their top and they get the boobs out and the police says, oh well, you know, just take care and off you, off you go on your way. And they are leered at and leched at by every single other male character in a bar, in any situation. It's like, oh, look at them, God, you know. But the one that really got me, bear in mind this is a PG, so the... Instead of the police being the people trying to stop the cannonball run, it's this environmental group. They are clearly taking the piss out of the whole environmental movement massively. Bearing in mind early 80s, so it would have been probably after the 70s fuel crisis and they're starting to get their V8s back and all this sort of thing. And the leader of this environmental group is called Arthur J. Foyt. So every time they talk about him, nobody can remember his name. So they always have to keep saying, oh, it's A.J. Foyt. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Um, and he's like, well, you know, next week, we, in our next meeting, we're going to be talking about the environmental impact of toothbrush, uh, electric toothbrushes and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> the ambulance crew then, and there's no other word for it, kidnap uh, Farah Fawcett and whiz off with her towards L.A., they anaesthetise her at one point to try and get out of a police stop. And they're talking to her. And it's the one bit of acting that Burt Reynolds has. He's hamming it up enormously. It's, it's such an opposite to the way he is in Smoking the Bandit, where clearly he's having a great time. And he's on the record as having said it was the most fun he's had making mm. a movie in his career. And this is only... I don't know, four years later? So yeah. what happened? Why, why, is, why is he looking... Why is he sleepwalking through this thing? He said he did it as a favour to Hal. He also got paid $5 million for four weeks' work, which up to that point was the highest paid actor in movie history. It's so, a lot of money for four weeks' work. I'll well, take yeah. that, thanks. But there's, there's one moment in the back of this ambulance and there's uh, Burt Reynolds and there's Farrah Fawcett and bear in mind, PG rating, so for those outside the UK, so PG is parental guidance, so it's suitable for older kids, but, you know, it's up to parents' discretion. She says to him, she thought that she was going to get raped. She thought there was going to be a gangbang. There's another conversation where she says that she doesn't wear underwear because <laughs> she is the environmental hippie. And I'm just watching it, sort of going, who wrote this? This is just awful. And she has no agency. She's this kind of, oh, oh God, oh, I'm just a woman. Oh, da, 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 da. At least the two women in the, in the Countach kind of have a bit of balls to them and they're like, we know that this is all going on, but we're just here to win a race. It's shocking. And then the film itself is incredibly badly written and paced. There's a lot of these little setups and gags. So you will get two people who turn up you know they have a bit of a, a sort of establishing story and then at some point they'll drive into a swimming pool or they will drive off a cliff or they will do something and that's kind of ha 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 set up and punchline while the race is going on there's no sense of jeopardy there's no sense of who's winning how close they are to the, to the goal at one point they all stop and they're all in the same place at the same time a fight breaks out 
uh, Peter Fonda turns up. This biker gang turns up. They all have a fight. Jackie Chan does his thing. Because of course he does. Well, of course he does, because you got Jackie That's Chan. That's why in the film. he was there. Very much so. And you can kind of see that um, Burt Reynolds is kind of doing this like Errol Flynn thing where he's like, you know, I'm the, the kind of the all American hero. And Jackie Chan's just like, thump, think, boom. And then cuts, and they're all a mile from the finish. And they, you know, it's then how you sort of get to the end. And I'm just like, this is just bad on so many levels. I thought going into this that Cannonball Run was the one that kind of kept truest to the ethos of the road race. And that Cannonball Run 2 was the sequel where everything's bigger and they get Frank Sinatra in it and, and what have you. Having watched Cannonball Run, I'm now feeling more fond towards Cannonball Run 2 because at least they know that they're kind of taking the piss and that it's it's not an action film. And it also really makes me want to watch uh, the Gumball Rally again. So I love the Gumball Rally because it is gritty. It's focused on the cars. It sets up the characters. It maintains this narrative. It's the, it's the grown-up, you know, it's the big brother of Cannonball Run. Yeah. It's just... It's so bad. It's it's kind of shocking because it feels to me like it's something that I've carried with me like my whole life is the love of this film. You made and- a CD for a road trip we did one year, which you you put that song you mentioned at the start. I think it was yes. the first track on the CD. It, this well is your thing. So when we came to divvy these movies up, I'm thinking I'm being greedy by taking Smokey and the Bandit, which is a Stone Cold classic. But I know you like the Cannonball Run, so I thought I was doing you a favour and not taking that one because I could have been super mean about it. But it turns out I don't need to because you've done it. It's just... I'm, I'm I'm coming to terms now with the fact that a bit of my childhood is actually far shitter than I ever thought it was. <laughs> it's a product of its time, but yeah, it's by far the worst of the two movies. It, it doesn't feel coherent. If if I were to tell you that the script on the Cannibal Run was all improv and that Smoking the Bandit had been honed and crafted over drafts and drafts, you'd probably buy that on the evidence of both movies. And mm. it's actually the other way round. Very much so. And it it's... I, I do wonder, looking back at it, there are obviously things that were written by spiteful car people. There were obviously things that were written by men. There are Hawaiian tropic girls in a swimming pool for no reason. There are things in there where the spitefulness towards the kind of the environmentalism bit could have been a great satire. But the problem is that what it becomes in the film is it's not the police against the cannonball run. So at the end of the Blues Brothers... There's this escalation where it's the it's one policeman, then it's three, then it's all the police, then the army turn up, then there's <laughs> helicopters, there's guys on horseback. It feels like the whole world is trying to beat them. Cannonball Run is one bloke with a notepad going, I've got you this time. Uh, that's kind of it. And I will absolutely revisit the Gumball Rally for a future episode. I even think the films, the various films that were made around Gumball 3000, some of those are really interesting road movies. Yeah, the the, the Gumball 3000 movie, I haven't watched for a while, but I remember watching that quite a lot when it came out mm. and is in an interesting snapshot of the time of that recreation of the rally that goes all the way back to harking back to the kind of ethos of the Sea to Shining Sea. Mm. And narrated by Burt Reynolds. Yeah, Good hey. see. Oh, look at that. It all comes full circle. But, you know, Burt Reynolds' double bill, it's clear that Smokey and the Bandit is the superior movie and the one that you should rewatch as soon as possible. And trust me, if you get it on like a Blu-ray reissue or something like that, it looks really, really good. Um, oh, one fact I totally forgot to mention uh, that's probably quite important for car guys. The sound <laughs> of that Trans Am in the movie is not the sound of the actual Trans Am. <gasps> Shock horror, because apparently the one there didn't sound good enough. It didn't sound any powerful and mean enough. Apparently, it's a 1955 Chevrolet Custom that was used in both the movies Tulane Blacktop and American Graffiti that provided the sound for the Trans Am during the movie. All Foley sound effects because the Trans Am did not sound intimidating enough. Wow. They did a much better job than Claude Lelouch did with his Ferrari thing. (laughs) Because I didn't even notice the fact that it was dubbed. So top work sound editors. 
Excellent. And that's the end of our uh, um, Burt Reynolds double bill. And and talking of V8s, my choice for this week's thing I've been watching on YouTube, I found it via a Facebook post from somebody or other, is a rather interesting clip of what I'm guessing you could call a dynamic dynamometer, which is basically, it's the front suspension of a E39 M5 driving the Nürburgring. Yay, M5 content. <laughs> the best M5 as well. The best M5, my favourite M5. Still need one. It, it's it basically the front it. chassis of an E39 yeah. M5 being driven around the Nürburgring, only it's not the Nürburgring, it's like a chassis sim rig. So you've got um, no drive to the front wheels, it's two rollers, and the steering's steering, and you can hear the tyres being tortured, and it's really cool. If, if you ever wonder how a modern road car suspension works, particularly under load and with steering angle and, and all that sort of thing, and actually with chassis roll as well, because the whole rig can It tilt simulates and twist. the car rolling under your, you know, mm. the lateral G. It's really interesting to be able to watch it. And also, if you are a massive Nürburgring geek like Martin and I are, you can watch it and go, which complex of corners is this? I reckon that's Hatson back. Oh, no, low, oh. No, that's a jump. That's a jump, right? God knows how they've cut it together, but it's quite—it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's almost mem- mesmerising. After a while, you just watch it like one of those executive stress toys with the uh, clicking balls. I do wonder if, like, a proper Nurburgring expert, like Dale Lomas or somebody who knows the place inside out, would actually be able to tell you which sequence of corners it is. There's oh, a great definitely. story going around that apparently Lewis Hamilton went into the dyno rig when they were one of the, maybe it was Mercedes testing some of his engines and they were running it around an F1 circuit and he listened for a minute and he said, that's hungry. <laughs> and they looked at him like he was a witch. And he went, like, I can just tell from the gear changes and the load the, the car's under, mm. I know where it is. And they went, yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> so it's, if I, you are that deeply entrenched in driving and, and in circuits and, and so on, you probably could tell. I hadn't got a clue. I was too busy staring at those front wheels going, E39 M5, pretty. Because <laughs> they're gorgeous I, wheels. Sorry. They are. They are great wheels. Without wishing to clang a name too much, but I will. I once had a trip to the Renault F1 factory in Endstone. Clang. And we actually got to go into the seven-post rig while the car was in there. And we were told, you know, no photos, no video, no nothing, but... Can you tell which circuit it is? And I could tell they were running Singapore on the rig because it was the Singapore layout when it still had the enormous chicane in it. Oh, right, at the very end. Yeah, and it just... You'd you'd watch it and it was like... And then it just punched, like, the left wheel, then the the right front, and it was like, yep, Singapore. Yeah. Didn't Mark Webber do a really great overtaking mover on somebody there back in the day? Wasn't that the one where there's that, sh- that slow motion shot of Schumacher and the Mercedes is just like, you know, absolutely... Oh, possibly. I, put, I even put that up. Uh, yeah, I love that one. That's proper drift spec. Um, I have to dig that out somewhere. Um, there must in, be a gif of that we can put on Twitter. Yeah, I'll have to dig that one out. Um, I was going to suggest another M5 video that um, I was sent by uh, Jochen of Frozen Speed of uh, an E39 M5 being spanked around the Nürburgring by someone with massive <laughs> knackers, sideways everywhere. But I have a better one. Henry Catchpole driving Colin McRae's Impreza WRC car from 1997. That's all I need to say. Yep. If you are a rally fan, especially if you are a rally fan in the 1990s, which I was, then Colin McRae at that time was at his peak. And the blue... 555 Impreza is my definition of rally car. You say rally mm. car, I think that car. And just hearing it on the film, the flat four going, Wah! it's being <laughs> driven by someone who, who both can drive, but is also a huge rally and Colin McRae fan. And it's joyous to see the car out again, to see it being used, to just hear the sound of that flat four. I got a little bit misty watching this. I won't. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit it. I just was so happy to see the car being driven again, as it was meant to be, and to see mm. being driven by someone like Henry Catchpole, who's a you know he's done rallies himself. He's a proper bobble hat guy, and yeah. it just made me very very happy. So that is absolutely worth your time. It's just ticked over something like 100k views on YouTube, and it needs to have many 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 oh. more. It deserves way more than that. So please, if you don't do anything else. Please click on the link to watch Henry drive Colin McRae's Impreza. 
don't don't you find as well now when you look at cars like that and the you know 97 cars in particular they just look so clean compared to the yaris which is just you know covered in aero addenda four isn't it? arches and canards yeah, and the i was quite surprised i didn't realize that this was still a manual car as well Mm. I'd thought by this point they'd gone to the semi-automatic paddle shift or at least the the kind of um, the semi-auto where you've got the sequential, that's the word, where, you know, you can smack the lever up and down the box. No, this is a full-blown H-pan manual and you do need to change gear properly and give it some welly. And that was a surprise to me. So this is a proper full-on analogue car. And I think it being Colin McRae's car has a particular mm. particular setup on the diff at the rear because he liked a slidey car. He always liked a slidey car. It's one of the reasons he was so loved by fans everywhere. His car was always more sideways. And I think the car has to be driven the way he drove it to get the best out of it. And I was always gutted that he didn't win the title in 97 because he was the best driver. And he got, I think, reliability took for a few. And the classic McRae, he's either going to win or he's going to bin it. And I think mm. maybe one or two crashes took that away from him. But the car is you're you're right it's smooth and clean and it just it screams cool in a way that i don't think the yaris ever will no matter how fast the current 2019 world rally cars are you park it next to this impreza everyone will go around the impreza or at least everyone of a certain age maybe the younger kids will go to the yaris and it does look kind of spectacular the big wing and all the aero stuff but it's the impreza every time the Yaris is, what does that livery look like? It's black and red and... It's Toyota. It's just... It's just Toyota's corporate colours. It's, it's not an iconic livery. Toyota's iconic livery is the Celica one. Yes, the Castrol. The Castrol one, yeah. That's, green. No, they sh- if they'd have just gone, look, can we get them on board again? I'd be more on board with this, but yeah. The that- 97, the, the era of the WRC cars when they first started, when they moved on from Group A to WRC, that is rallying for me. And rallying died when Sebastian Loeb came in and ruined it for everyone. And on that cheery note, (laughs) (laughs) that's it for this episode. If you think we've got it right or got it wrong, share your thoughts and opinions with us on Twitter at AutoMoviePod, on our AutoMoviePodcast Facebook page, or email us at comments at AutoMoviePodcast.com. If there is somebody in your life that you think might enjoy this podcast and likes to talk cars and movies and all talking about all these sorts of things, please share this podcast with those friends. Subscribe on their phone if they're happy to hand it over. Fly a banner through the sky if that's your thing. But we would absolutely appreciate it if you can share the love and bring us a few more welcome listeners. Um, Tell everyone tell everyone right marty's going to uh, go and find a truck full of non-pasteurized cores actually what i'm going to do is go and work out how you can grow a moustache like burt reynolds and still look cool <laughs> this might be a many year project and a phd thesis at the end of it certainly for me and i'm going to go off and actually buy a copy of smoking the bandit and watch it until next time everyone Bye.